The Autobiographical Time-Traveling Adventures of Me by Doc Moran. Brought to you by your ad here. When you have a thing to sell or promote or whatever and you want to try to convince people who like the thing I make to buy the thing you make, try your ad here. A subsidiary of Call Me and We'll Discuss It. Episode 1, Grand Central Terminal. The following fabrication was inspired by a true story. It all began... Well, it didn't begin, because this is, or eventually will be, a time travel adventure. Non-linear by its very nature, with much jumping back and forth through history accompanied by various crazy mix-em-ups. So there's no beginning, but there is a night that triggered much of what was to follow. Let's start there. America, during the Second World War. June 18, 1942. A Thursday. 11 p.m.-ish. Grand Central Terminal sat at the heart of Midtown Manhattan on 42nd Street, bound by Vanderbilt Avenue to the west, Lexington Avenue to the east, and squeezed in a traffic-y hug by Park Avenue, which split like a cartoon character and a fork in the road, circumnavigating the massive complex via an elevated roadway running from 41st Street to 46th. From the outside, the terminal building was a squat bruiser dressed up in fancy duds a giant gray box cake with architectural fiddly bit icing around the edges and a huge sculpture as a cake topper, featuring an assortment of giant gods getting up ons with a 13-foot Tiffany clock. Unquestionably impressive, but inside? Have you been inside Grand Central? It's so awesome. It's like if the whole of the city of New York had a lobby. It's what Zeus's bathroom probably looked like, but without the commode. It's what the scions of a robber baron built when they decided to capture in granite and marble the ultimate expression of real fancy. It's a temple to human ingenuity and transportation that lifts the spirit and screams to the heavens, Fuck yeah! Trains! A veritable city within a city, Grand Central contained two levels of train tracks, a police station, hospital, taxi stand, art gallery, telegram office, travel bureau, newsreel theater, barbershops, nail salons, business offices, 234 telephone booths, 54 shops and retailers, 16 eating places and coffee shops, including the famous Oyster Bar, and the CBS television studios. And this was years before they even invented television. Plus, numerous well-lighted tunnels, arcades, and corridors that gave direct access to a further 18 surrounding hotels and office buildings, plus the IRT subway, for good measure. At the heart of it all was the main concourse, a huge-ass, brightly lit space featuring a long row of ticket windows along one side and the gates to the train platforms on another, facing each other across an expansive marble floor. A secular cathedral through which hundreds of thousands of people were funneled each and every day on trajectories both urgent and humble. Some likened the rushing movement of the crowd to an elaborate dance, but in practice, it was more like the world's biggest, most complicated game of dodgeball. If you replaced all the balls with other people, multiplied them a few thousand times over, and made them play while simultaneously trying to get to work or run their errands. Yet somehow, collisions were rare. Towering above the crowd and filling the entire east wall of the concourse was this big fucking 100-foot-high poster. A huge photo mural with soldiers and tanks and battleships and planes and shit interspersed with pictures and slogans of people growing wheat and being brave and industrious. A big-ass movie poster for World War II itself, to boost spirits and strike fear into the heart of Hitler, and let him know we were on our way to kick his ass. Also reminding you to buy defense bonds and stamps now, because someone needed to pay for all of that. High overhead, and even more impressive, was the station's most famous feature, the great barrel vault ceiling, painted with a celestial mural. A depiction of the heavens in the winter zodiac, 
Aquarius, Pisces, Aries, Taurus, Gemini, and Cancer. Plus four other constellations, Pegasus, Triangulum, Musca, and Orion, though some of those sound made up. To the great embarrassment of the terminal, all of the images except Orion were backwards, because the crew who originally painted the mural decades before royally screwed up and got the instructions the wrong way around. True story. Once cerulean blue, ablaze with gold leaf depicting the constellations and stars, over the years the ceiling had become faded with age and moldy with water damage, until its color resembled khaki painting pants caught in the laundry with a brand new pair of turquoise panties. It was still really sweet, though. Despite having seen better days, it would see better days again. Directly below, in the very center of the concourse, the center of the terminal, and if you will, at the spiritual center of New York itself, was the golden clock, perched atop the circular information booth. Manufactured by the self-winding clock company of Brooklyn, New York, installed and maintained by Western Union, and synchronized by them with its own master clock, whose time was fed directly from the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., each of the four illuminated clock faces of the golden clock displayed as near-perfect time as was possible, usually. Jacob Bachtold stood on the concourse floor, staring alternately between the golden clock and his own pocket watch, as the evening crowds diverted around him, an oblivious pebble in the rushing stream of commuters. An elderly gentleman, plain and slender, with a long face and tired eyes behind thick glasses, Jacob was the clockmaster of Grand Central, keeper of all the clocks in the terminal, as well as in all of the signal towers and stations for 70 miles out. Swiss by birth, Jacob came to America as a master clockmaker and went to work for the New York Central Railroad in 1903, the year they broke ground on the terminal. He had been there since the very beginning. Maintaining the timekeeping accuracy of the clocks was more than a vocation for Jacob. It was an overwhelming and irresistible beckoning from the very fabric of the universe to make sure that all was as it should be. And here, on this day, there was something wrong. Jacob had arrived at work at 8 a.m. that morning as he did every day and began his rounds, making certain that all of the clocks were functioning properly. And they were, each and every one. But throughout the day, he began to notice that the clocks were losing a few seconds. All of them, in complete synchronicity with each other. It was happening when he wasn't watching. Under examination, there was nothing wrong with the clocks, but when he looked away, they slowed. At first, he assumed it was his own watch running fast, which was unusual, so he cracked open its case and inspected its movement. His watch was in perfect working order. He called Western Union for comparison. His watch was accurate. Finally, he called the U.S. Naval Academy and verified it one final time. His watch was correct. The terminal clocks were slow. Jacob firmly believed that clocks were like people, each with their own personality. Some were efficient, some were lazy, some temperamental, and some reliable. But Jacob spoke their language and prided himself on being able to coax each and every one of them into fulfilling its purpose and correctly measuring the passage of time. Except today, they were all being stubborn and sneaky. Jacob worked on the problem long past his usual quitting time, calling upon all of his skills and powers to try and solve the mystery, but he could find nothing wrong with the mechanisms. Now it was past 11 p.m. and Jacob was beginning to suspect that the clocks were purposefully stalling, trying to delay the end of the day. There were no two ways about it. The clocks were waiting for something. End of episode one. If you are enjoying this series, you can send a Venmo tip at Doc Moran, all one word.